Hello everyone, welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 131, King Nefertiti. This episode explores yet another co-regent for Akhenaten. After the short reign of Smenkkare, we find another person taking power to help the pharaoh rule. This person seems to be Nefertiti, and today we explore how the queen may have become a king. This episode was brought to you by John, TJ and George, who joined the show on Patreon.com. Thank you kindly folks, I appreciate your generosity. You help keep me fueled with coffee. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. On with the story. The year was 1347 BCE, regnal year 16 under the majesty of Akhenaten, the son of Ra, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Of course, the people of Egypt also lived under the majesty of Nefer Neferu Aten, the great king's wife, Neferet Eti. This woman, better known as Nefertiti, had been the queen of Egypt for approximately 14 years. She was in her late 20s or early 30s, and she continued to rule alongside her powerful but strange husband. It has been a while since we caught up with Nefertiti. The last time we did a deep dive was episode 119, where we covered the queen's life, her daughters, and the boy who might be her son, the prince Tutankhaten. Since then, Nefertiti has been quiet, for good reasons that we will cover later in the episode. For now, I thought it might be worth doing a brief recap on the life of Queen Nefertiti where she came from, how she appeared, and what kind of power exactly she wielded in Akhenaten's court. That way, we can get a good sense of where the queen was at, before covering events later in the reign. If you do not need a recap, feel free to skip ahead to chapter 2, timecode in the description. Nefertiti was the king's wife, pretty much from the beginning. She pops up around year two, and begins to accompany the king in art and public records. Back then, she was simply called Nefertiti, a name that means the beautiful one has arrived. Her name appeared in a cartouche, or container, alongside the two used by Akhenaten, Neferkeperura. So, the pharaoh had two names, and Nefertiti had one. To begin with, they were a conventional royal couple. Nothing out of the ordinary. Nefertiti's origins are uncertain. The queen came from somewhere, but we do not know which town or what family produced her exactly. There is one reasonably good candidate. Nefertiti might be the daughter of Ai, a prominent member of Akhenaten's court. Ai was well-placed, with high officers in the military, and he bore a title called God's Father, a title that might indicate he was the father-in-law of the king. That is speculative, but possible. For sure, Ai was influential and prominent, and he is a decent bet for being Nefertiti's father. Additionally, we know that Ai's wife, a lady named T, acted as Nefertiti's wet nurse. So there is a connection between the family of Ai and the great queen. On that, it's an okay bet that I was her father. Unfortunately, nothing is certain on this question, so we cannot say for sure. 
Besides her wet nurse, Nefertiti had another female relative. We know the queen had a sister, a lady named Mutnojmet, or the goddess Mut is sweet. The name could also be pronounced Mutbeneret, it is unclear. But whatever her name, this lady gained prestige along with Nefertiti. When Nefertiti became queen, Mutnojmet gained the title Senet ni Hemet Nesutweret, sister of the great king's wife. She appeared in Nefertiti's entourage in many private tombs, and she seems to be a close companion of the queen. The images of this lady are conventional, you would not pick Mutnojmet out of a crowd, but they do give a sense that the queen's family was a prominent part of the royal court. For now, that is all we can say. For the first few years of her reign, Nefertiti and her husband performed the standard duties of Egyptian monarchs. They commissioned temples, organised building projects, and made offerings to the gods. They produced children to carry on the bloodline, and they oversaw the mechanisms of government. Again, they were relatively normal, all things considered, and for the first couple of years, you might not think anything was amiss. Then, things started to get a bit strange. As time went by, Nefertiti's husband deviated more and more from the traditional images of royal power. The king's art changed and emphasised new styles of representation. Moving forward, the king and queen appeared with similar body shapes. Male and female, they shared a voluptuous, curvy figure. And royal texts presented the couple as fertile, life-giving beings. Artistically, the king's public image became almost indistinguishable from Nefertiti's. The two had the same basic body shape, and it is hard to tell whether some statues depict the king or the queen. Basically, things were getting a little bit abstract in an artistic sense. The rulers of Egypt were playing with divine, creative imagery, and this blurred the lines between Akhenaten and Nefertiti. We will come back to this idea a little bit later. For now, let's focus on the queen. Looking back, Nefertiti's early years in power were intriguing. The queen appeared on the scene as a conventional royal wife. Nothing unusual, nothing controversial. But over time, her husband, and perhaps other people in the government, started making increasingly unusual decisions things started to get strange. Eventually, of course, the king instituted his big change. He altered his public name from Neferkeperura Amunhotep, or Amun is satisfied, to Neferkeperura Ak en Aten, effective for Aten. With a new identity, the king presented a new image of his power, and a new emphasis in his priorities. Nefertiti participated in this shift. Until year 5, the queen was simply Khemet Nesudweret Neferet Iti, the king's great wife Nefertiti. But when Akhenaten adopted his new moniker, the queen followed suit. Now, she presented herself as Nefer Neferu Aten, a name that, loosely translated, means How beautiful is the Aten? This was a shift in public image, similar to her husband's. The Queen of Egypt emphasised her connection to the Sun God, and she reflected that with an expanded name. Now, she was Nefer Neferu Aten Neferet Eti, or How Beautiful is the Aten, The Beautiful One Arrives. This was the name she would use for the next 12 years.
After year five, the big changes came one after another. I won't bore you with the recap on all of it, except to say that the middle part of Akhenaten's reign, from year five to year twelve, is fascinating. And not just for the king. Nefertiti's life was equally significant, and let's explore that briefly. During the middle years, Nefertiti's public role changed substantially. Previously, she had been a traditional great king's wife. She appeared in art, standing behind her husband and supporting him in his duties. Like most Egyptian queens, Nefertiti was officially a secondary figure. She always appeared smaller than her husband, her status was always lower. Obviously, she was still superior to every other person in the kingdom, but compared to Akhenaten, Nefertiti was a less prominent individual. As time went by though, that secondary status started to change. Over the years, Akhenaten's ideas developed, and Nefertiti's position changed according to these. This change happened slowly. From years 1 to 5, the queen appeared small, artistically speaking. Any scene that showed the king and queen together, Nefertiti was the secondary figure. Then, after year 5, things slowly began to change. First, Nefertiti started to appear with increasingly tall crowns. The queen sported headgear that added height and made her appear far more prominent. Physically, she was still small, but with these crowns, her image seemed to be almost as tall as Akhenaten's. In one scene, the crown even makes her slightly taller. These changes are small, but significant. They suggest that the queen was gaining power and beginning to occupy a more central place in royal art. So, for the first ten years or so, Nefertiti was secondary, but increasingly visible. Her figure was smaller than the king's, but her accessories seemed to hint at more power. Normally, this might be the end of the story. A queen would gain prominence, but remain a secondary supporting figure. Not Nefertiti, though. Instead, the queen went further and started to appear as Akhenaten's equal. Starting in year 12, images of royal ceremonies show the king and queen side by side. The best examples come from private tombs at Arket Aten, Amana. Here, Artistic scenes show the grand celebration, the festival of tribute, that Akhenaten hosted in year 12. We described that event in episode 121. Long story short, it was an enormous party, a spectacular display of Pharaoh's imperial power. It is also the moment when Nefertiti reached her highest visual prominence. In scenes depicting the festival of tribute, we see Akhenaten and Nefertiti travelling to the ceremony. Then, they sit together to watch the proceedings. In the first of these scenes, the royal couple sit in chairs, litters, that servants carry on their shoulders. Nefertiti sits beside Akhenaten, but instead of showing the two royals separately, one behind the other, the artist decided to show them beside one another. Here, we have a figure of Akhenaten sitting on his throne, and just to the right of him, a couple of millimetres, a thin set of lines seems to trace a second outline. You might think it was a double line for Akhenaten, but actually, it's Nefertiti. 
She is sitting behind Akhenaten, as if we are looking at them from the side. Imagine two people sitting in front of you. They are facing to the right, and you are looking at their profile. If you lined things up perfectly, you might not notice the second person sitting just beyond the first. But the artist has put them ever so slightly off each other, so that you get the sense that Nefertiti is there. It's like a seeing double effect, as if you're slightly drunk. The outline of Akhenaten is the main scene, then there is the second figure, just behind and to the right. It is so subtle, you might not notice it at a glance. And if it was just this outline, we might assume the artist had made a mistake, and drew the second line to fix it. But the sculptor was clever. To make sure Nefertiti was visible, the artist drew her hands separate from the hands of Akhenaten. In one scene, the king sits comfortably, arms crossed over his chest. But another arm, Nefertiti's arm, emerges from the back to drape around his waist. It's an affectionate pose, as if she is holding onto his hip. Then, the second image shows the king and queen seated together, and in this moment they are almost identical. But while Akhenaten gestures forward with one arm, his other arm is resting on his lap. There, we see the subtle hint of the queen's hand reaching out, and Akhenaten and Nefertiti sit on their thrones, holding hands in public. It is the definition of adorable. Images like these are uncommon in royal art. Traditionally, the queen appears separately, usually behind her husband. But Akhenaten and Nefertiti are appearing together, in such a way that they are almost indistinguishable. This is an interesting process that perhaps reflects the queen's increasing power and prominence. Apparently, by year 12, she was almost the equal of her husband, and he was conveying that in the art. There are a couple of different ways to interpret this. On the one hand, you could see it as a symbolic promotion, Nefertiti gaining additional influence, but not much political authority. On the other hand, you could see it as the queen becoming something more, something closer perhaps to a king. This is the view taken by Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves, who suggests that the year 12 artistic scenes represent the moment at which Nefertiti ascended to a higher political level. I'm going to come back to that interpretation and Reeves's hypothesis a bit later, but it's worth mentioning that the artistic scenes of Nefertiti and Akhenaten as equals could be interpreted a couple of different ways. It all depends on how you're reading the history. Anyway, back to the art. So images of Nefertiti grow more sophisticated, artistically and politically, as we reach the second half of Akhenaten's reign. The queen's figure slowly becomes larger, and her accessories add more height. Then, in year 12, Nefertiti appears with Akhenaten as a nearly identical figure. She sits beside him, not behind, and her figure is all but indistinguishable from his. In these scenes, Nefertiti is the same height, stature, and position as Akhenaten, 
and only a few details reveal she is there at all. If you were not looking closely, you might never notice. These details are subtle, but incredibly important. By year 12, Nefertiti seems to be Akhenaten's equal. To go along with her increased visual presence, Nefertiti also got a new title. Late in Akhenaten's reign, probably after year 12, images of the queen start to show a variation on her conventional royal identity. Officially, Nefertiti was the Hemet Nesut Weret, the Great King's Wife. But later tombs at Amana start to show a new version of this title, one with a slightly different meaning. Towards the end of Akhenaten's reign, Nefertiti appears as both the Hemet Nesut Weret and as the Hemet Nesut Ayat. The two titles are mostly the same, but their adjectives are different. The first one uses Weret, and the second uses Aat to describe the queen's position. Now, both words, Weret and Aat, mean great. So on the surface, the new title means the same thing as the old one, Great King's Wife. But there is a subtle difference between Weret and Aat, and it has to do with the degree of greatness that is implied. The first word, Weret, means great in the sense of high-ranking or even elder. The second word, Aat, is similar, but it has a slightly stronger connotation. If Weret means great or elder, you might say Aat means greater or eldest. In that sense, we could translate these two titles as Great King's Wife and Greatest King's Wife. They convey a subtle change in status related to the queen's position. Obviously, these two titles sound similar, and they might be confusing. To keep them separate, I will adapt Nefertiti's new title slightly, and call it Supreme King's Wife. In other words, Nefertiti went from being the most prominent royal wife to something even greater. The meaning of this shift is still a little bit unclear, because the nuances of these words are variable, they change over time. The easiest guess is that the new title, Hemet Nesut Aad, reflects Nefertiti's increasing status and prominence. If she started to appear as Akhenaten's equal in art, perhaps she needed a new title to convey that rise. The phrase Hemet Nesut Aad, Supreme King's Wife, might capture that idea. Alternatively, the new title might be a way of differentiating Nefertiti from the other great king's wife that was in Egypt. When Smenkhkare became king, he took the wife Merit Aten, who was Nefertiti's daughter and a princess of Egypt. When Smenkhkare became a king, Merit Aten became a Hemet Nesudweret, a great king's wife. It's possible that this is what caused Nefertiti to change her title. If Merit Aten was the great king's wife, perhaps Nefertiti wanted to differentiate herself, or perhaps she needed to. In that sense, her new title, Hemet Nesud Aat, might reflect her increasing power, but also be a way to differentiate her from her daughter Merit Aten, the other great king's wife. This explanation, I think, is equally valid and quite likely. Either way, the new title does reflect some shift 
in Nefertiti's image. So, Nefertiti appeared early in Akhenaten's reign, and her status changed significantly over the years. By regnal year 12, the queen appeared to be the equal to her husband, and her symbolic power had grown immense. The festival of tribute was a moment of triumph for both Akhenaten and Nefertiti. While the king celebrated his imperial power, the queen gained visual equality with her husband. Soon after, Nefertiti began to use a title that means something like Supreme King's Wife. This was an upgrade on her older title, Great King's Wife, and it may reflect a promotion, an increase in status, or a way to differentiate herself from the other Great King's Wife, Merit Atin. However you read it, the queen was becoming more powerful, more prominent, and as her status increased, royal art and texts changed to reflect her position. It was a culmination in many respects. All of this material is fragmentary, and scholars have pieced it together from different traces. And for a long time, it was hard to determine exactly what Nefertiti was doing. You see, after her triumph in year 12, records for Nefertiti seemed to dry up. Texts and images of the queen that had become so prominent suddenly stopped, almost overnight. It seemed like the queen vanished, and no one could figure out what happened. As you can imagine, there are many questions. What happened to Nefertiti? Where did she go? And how did her disappearance relate to that strange king, Smenkkare? Well, those are the big questions, and we will explore them in chapter 2. For now, it is time for a break. See you in a moment! Chapter 2. Welcome back. If you are just joining us, we have reached 1347 BCE, regnal year 16 of Akhenaten, and the great king's wife, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti. By now, Nefertiti has gained status, and seems to be an equal of her royal husband. She appears in art the same size as the king, and her new name, in two cartouches, convey the idea that her influence is the same as that of Akhenaten. Looking at her life in the big picture, Nefertiti has come a long way. However, after her big moment in year 12, things get a bit murkier for the queen. Nefertiti appears at the festival of tribute in glory and splendor, but soon after that, records for the queen begin to dry up. It almost seems like she had disappeared, and for a long time, scholars could not figure out why. As you can guess, there were many theories on what happened. Throughout the 20th century, scholars floated different ideas about the disappearance, quote-unquote, of Queen Nefertiti. The most popular hypothesis was that she died, another victim of the epidemic that claimed so many lives in Akhenaten's family. Alternatively, some wondered if Nefertiti had lost favour in the royal court. 
Perhaps she had a falling out with Akhenaten, or the pharaoh had lost interest in his great wife. On the evidence available, both ideas were possible, and for decades, these theories painted a dramatic picture of scheming, politicking, and intrigue in Akhenaten's court. Now, we know those theories were wrong. We have new information that clarifies the picture. It turns out Nefertiti did not die or lose favour. In fact, she remained at Akhenaten's court, enjoying all the privileges of power. And we know this thanks to an out-of-the-way, overlooked text, discovered near to Arket Aten. In the hills north of the royal city, an old limestone quarry bears traces of ancient activity. The walls of this quarry bear inscriptions, texts, related to the work by Egyptian miners. Among the various bits of graffiti, one text in particular went overlooked, until quite recently. In 2014, Egyptologist Athena van der Peer published a remarkable find. Dr. van der Peer had identified an old graffito left by quarrymen working in the area. The text was short, but it had big implications for the later years of Akhenaten. The graffito said, quote, Regnal year 16, first month of the inundation, day 15. May the king of Upper and Lower Egypt live, he who lives on Ma'at, the lord of the two lands, Nefer-Keperu-Ra, Wa-En-Ra, life, prosperity, health. The son of Ra, who lives in Ma'at, the lord of the crowns, Akhenaten, life, prosperity, health. One who is great in his lifetime, living forever and ever. The king's great wife, his beloved, the lady of the two lands, Nefer Neferu Aten, Neferet Iti, living forever and ever. The beloved of Ra, the ruler of the two horizons, one who rejoices in the horizon in his name of Ra, he who comes as the Aten. Inscription recording the work of the mansion of the Aten under the authority of the king's scribe, Penthu, under the authority of the overseer of works. End quote. That text may sound long and waffly, and it is. And it may not sound important, but it was actually a significant discovery. Firstly, the text gave us another hard date in the later years of Akhenaten, a specific day, month, and year where we could pinpoint events or projects related to the king. In this case, the date was Regnal Year 16, the first month of the Nile Flood, probably around September. It was the 15th day, that was the latest firm date for Akhenaten ever discovered, and it helped to clarify what the king was doing. It seems that in year 16, Akhenaten sent workers to this quarry to gather limestone. The men went under the authority of a royal scribe named Penthu, and when they visited the quarry, Penthu left an inscription in red ink on the living rock. Writing with his brush, Penthu listed the names and titles of Egypt's ruling couple, Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And although he probably thought it was innocuous, Penthu's record is a big deal for historical research. For one thing, it helps to illuminate those royal projects I just mentioned. It also touches on an important question of Nefertiti. Penthu's record is valuable because it confirmed one important thing. According to this text, Nefertiti, the great king's wife, was alive and well in Regnal Year 16. She had not died, and she had not lost favour, 
she was still in power and still a member of the royal court. In other words, this one little inscription revealed what decades of scholarship had not. Just like that, the picture changed in a big way. The discovery of this graffito is a good example of how quickly history, quote-unquote, can change. New finds, even small ones, can have massive ramifications. In this case, all the old ideas about Nefertiti disappearing became obsolete overnight. A century of speculation changed in an instant. So, Queen Nefertiti was still around, living in the palace. Although records for her are a bit sparse, there is enough to say that she continued to rule alongside her husband right up to year 16. After that, things would start to change. As Akhenaten entered the last years of his rule, the power of Nefertiti grew even more. Eventually, things would culminate in a fascinating way. Not long after this year 16 graffito, it seems that Nefertiti became a king. In year 16, during the first month of the Nile flood, Nefer Neferu Aten Nefertiti was still the great king's wife, the queen of Egypt. Soon, though, she found her star rising even higher, and not long after this date, Nefer Neferu Aten became a ruler. Sometime in year 16, maybe a few months after the inundation, a new king shows up at Akhenaten city. Archaeologists excavating at Akhet Aten, Amana, have found objects and artifacts relating to a new co-ruler. This person has cartouches and seems to be another co-regent, a second person whom Akhenaten chose to assist him in rule. This ruler shows up primarily in art, but also a couple of objects discovered at Amana and even in the tomb of Tutankhamun. I'm going to cover the artistic pieces on the next episode. First, I think we need to get a grip with who this person might actually be. It appears that this new co-king is none other than Nefertiti. Our first hint of Akhenaten's second co-regent is the appearance of objects with a throne name. The new ruler shows up with the name Ankh Keperu Ra Nefer Neferu Aten. This is an interesting title. On the one hand, the name Nefer Neferu Aten is reasonably simple. It is the same one used by Nefertiti. Since year 5, the Queen of Egypt had called herself Nefer Neferu Aten as part of her royal identity. So one half of this royal name is identical with the Queen's. But the other name, the throne name, is more complicated. This name was Ankh-Keperura, which is the same name used by Akhenaten's other co-ruler, the elusive Smenkhkare. Previously, Akhenaten had used a man named Smenkhkare to act as his co-regent or second king. We recounted this story in episodes 127 and 130. Long story short, the co-regent Smenkhkare, also known as Ankh-Keperura, turned up around year 13, ruled for a year or so, and then died. At least, that might be what happened. We really do not know for sure. What we do know is that not long after Smenkhkare disappeared, another co-ruler turns up. This new person has the titles and imagery of a king, and seems to fill the same role. 
Problem is, they reused one of Smenkkare's names. Officially, he was Ankkeperura Smenkkara. The new king is Ankkeperura Neferneferu Aten. What gives? The existence of a second co-ruler has long been a matter of debate. I will not bore you with the details and just summarise it. For most of the 20th century, scholars argued over the identity of these people. The name Nefer-Neferu-Aten seemed reasonably clear. It had strong associations with Nefertiti. But the fact that both Nefer-Neferu-Aten and Smenkkare used a similar throne name? That little fact was a serious point of contention. It is rare for Egyptian kings to reuse names that their predecessors had wielded. A king might share a personal name, like Amunhotep, Tutmos, or Senusaret, and they might remix a throne name with slight modifications. For example, King Tutmos III was Menkepera, while Tutmos IV was Menkeperu-Ra. So you could put a new spin on an old name, so to speak. But in general, Egyptian kings avoided repeating or copying an older name, they would at least make some change to suit their new agenda. So, this case of Ankkeperura Neferneferu-Aten seemed to be a problem. The name just didn't fit with established conventions. The debate went back and forth over the years, and many scholars had their own individual takes. Maybe Smenkkare did not actually die, he just changed his name to Neferneferu-Aten. Or maybe Smenkkare never existed. Maybe Nefer-Neferu-Aten used both names at different points. There were endless articles and studies on the topic, trying to rationalise a complicated and shadowy situation. It went on and on, decade after decade, with no resolution in sight. Finally, there were breakthroughs. First, a scholar named John Harris observed that some artefacts related to these rulers actually didn't say Ankkeperura. Instead, a few objects had a variation, the name Ankh-et-Keperura. The difference was subtle but important. The et part of Ankh-et is a feminine version of Ankh. In other words, this ruler, Ankh-et-Keperura, was using a female version of the name. That was the first breakthrough. Then, a scholar named Mark Gabold added more to the picture. In 1998, Gabold published discussions of objects relating to this king, Ankheperura Nefer-Neferu-Aten. In his research, Gabold was able to identify a new epithet or title related to this king. Apparently, the ruler Nefer-Neferu-Aten was also called Ak-en-hi-es. Loosely translated, this phrase means one who is effective for her husband. It clearly related to a woman rather than a male, because the hieroglyph S is a feminine one. If this person were a male, they would have had the name Ak-en-hi-f, effective for his husband. Since that did not appear, Nefer-Neferu-Aten must have been a woman. Gabold's discovery and the name Anket Keperura proved that this second co-regent was a female. Nefer Neferu Aten, effective for her husband, seems to be a queen acting as a king. 
And on that basis, scholars like Gabold, Aidan Dodson, and James Allen suggest that Nefer-Neferu-Aten and Smenkkare are two different people. With that, it seems like a major puzzle is solved. Knowing that Nefer-Neferu-Aten was a woman, the most likely candidate is Nefertiti. The great king's wife, Nefertiti, had used the throne name Nefer-Neferu-Aten for years, long before this co-regent person appeared on the scene. Add to that a few other factors that I won't bore you with, and it seems reasonably certain that King Anket Kapuru-Ra Nefer-Neferu-Aten is none other than Nefertiti. There is an alternative interpretation to this material, which I will cover in the epilogue, but for now, we seem to have our solution. Between regnal years 12 and 16, the Queen of Egypt, Nefertiti, rose higher and higher in the royal court. Previously, she had been a conventional wife of the king, secondary, supportive, lower. But soon, her prominence grew, and she became more and more visible. In artistic scenes, the queen's figure appeared larger and larger, to the point that she was the same size and virtually indistinguishable from her husband. In terms of symbolic importance, Nefertiti seems to have become more powerful over the years. After year 12, this process accelerated. The queen started to appear with a new title, Hemet Nesut Aat, or Greatest Wife of the King. And eventually, she may have become a co-regent to Akhenaten. Adopting a new name, Nefertiti became Anket Kepuru Ra Nefer Neferu Aten. At that point, her slow rise in power reached its zenith. The queen was now a king. There are still many questions remaining about all of this, and new discoveries can change the picture drastically. Up until 2014, it seemed like a reasonably solid theory that Nefertiti died or lost favour sometime after year 12. Now, we know that she continued in her role, at least until year 16. Chronologically, year 16 is the likely point at which Nefertiti ascended to co-rule. So, around 1347 BCE, the Queen of Egypt transitioned to a new role. And once again, Egypt had two kings. Moving forward, Nefertiti's power and fame would grow. And on the next episode, I will explore some images of this queen as a king. Also, I would be remiss if I did not take some time to discuss the most famous image of Nefertiti. A limestone head, exquisitely carved and painted, may provide our best look at the Queen of Egypt. So, on the next episode, we take a little break from the narrative to discuss the art of Nefertiti, in particular, the famous Nefertiti bust, its creation, discovery, and how it wound up in a museum far from Egypt. We now come to the end of this episode. Stick around after the music for an epilogue, where I discuss an alternative theory regarding Nefertiti's rise to kingship. Before I do that though, I would like to thank Linda, Ellen, Terry, Neil, and Andrea, who are my priest-level backers on Patreon. My special gratitude to you for your incredibly generous support. Thank you deeply. I hope you enjoyed the show.
To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. May the Aten shine upon you and your family, and keep you safe from the dangers of the night. That is all from me. See you on the next one. Now, on to the epilogue. Queen Nefertiti rose to power gradually over the course of Akhenaten's reign. From a simple wife to a powerful equal, and ultimately to a king, her life followed an interesting path. Of course, there are many ways to interpret this historical material, and the evidence for Nefertiti's rise. One notable hypothesis was proposed by Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves. You may know Dr. Reeves from a 2015 study that suggested the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings might hold secret, undiscovered chambers. It was Reeves who prompted the years-long scanning project that, in 2020, has yet to find anything conclusive. But we will keep our fingers on that particular pulse. You never know. Nicholas Reeves has also published on the reign of Akhenaten. In his 2001 book, Egypt's False Prophet, Reeves suggested that Queen Nefertiti was both Nefer-Neferu-Aten and the elusive Smenkhkare. The idea goes that after year 12, Nefertiti began to act as a co-ruler, using the name Nefer-Neferu-Aten first. Then, after her husband died, Reeves suggests Nefertiti became an independent king, and at that point, changed her name, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, to Smenkhkare. Reeves presents his ideas as a progression, where Nefertiti becomes more and more prominent, and as she does so, the queen alters her titles to suit her developing positions. Eventually, she is no longer Nefertiti, but a new figure entirely. Reeves summarises the progression as follows. Quote, 1. Queen Nefertiti becomes Queen Nefer-Neferu-Aten Nefertiti. 2. Queen Nefer-Neferu-Aten Nefertiti becomes the co-regent Ankh-Keperu-Ra Nefer-Neferu-Aten, along with epithets in two cartouches. 3. Co-regent Ankh-Keperu-Ra Nefer-Neferu-Aten becomes co-regent and then king Ankh-Keperu-Ra Smenkhkara. End quote. If that sounded like a barrage of names, fair enough. Basically, Reeves presents a progression where Nefertiti goes from queen to co-regent to king. Along the way, she continually adds and replaces her names, to the point that Queen Nefertiti has become King Smenkhkare. It is an understandable idea, one that builds on the artistic and textual material quite well. But you will notice that I have not followed Reeves in my own reconstruction. There is a simple reason for this. Personally, I find Reeves's theory compelling in many respects. Unfortunately, his proposal is now 20 years old, and many of its basic points will be out of date. Hopefully, Reeves will produce a new edition of his study, or a new book entirely. And if that happens, he may be able to make his case with updated data and information. 
So while I like Reeves's hypothesis, the fact that it is 20 years old makes it difficult to use at the moment. So much has changed since 2001, and our knowledge for Nefertiti is much different than it was. Hopefully, Reeves will update his work, and if he does, I will update this episode. For now, I must leave that idea as a hypothesis. Then, there is one big teaser for the future. In 2015, Nicholas Reeves published two articles studying the Golden Mask of King Tutankhamun. Working with Mark Gabold and Raymond Johnson, Reeves presented evidence that the cartouches on the Mask of Tutankhamun were actually re-carvings from an original. Today, the Golden Mask bears the name Neb Keperura, which is the throne name of King Tutankhamun. But once upon a time, it had a different name. Traces of hieroglyphs beneath the name of Tutankhamun suggest that originally, the mask bore the cartouche Ankh-Keperura, beloved of Nefer-Keperura. This name is one of the titles for King Nefer-Neferu-Aten, aka Nefertiti, the co-king of Akhenaten. It seems that the golden mask of King Tutankhamun may originally have been commissioned for Nefertiti. Parts of it, like the face, were later reworked to present the new king, but it's possible that this golden mask was originally intended for her. Obviously, that is an intriguing idea, and we will discuss it further when we come to the tomb of Tutankhamun. For now, it is enough to know that the questions surrounding King Nefer Nefru Aten, probably Nefertiti, are deeply entwined with the artistic legacy and historical record of this strange period. 